0: Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 4 through 11, verse 26, and verse 31 through 51. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and struck him, and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear or deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, our text this morning, David and Goliath. Uh, this has to be one of the most familiar stories in the whole Bible, and I imagine that uh, even if you stepped into church for the first time, you've probably heard something about this story. Even if it's, uh, uh, you know, you heard a, a sports writer use the, the David and Goliath uh, analogy to describe a team that is, uh, you know, no one believes in, they're the underdogs or whatever. Um, this story has been portrayed in uh, music and movies and paintings and, and sculptures. Um, everyone has kind of put their own interpretation on it. Um, and I thought, I thought it'd be fun to, to, uh, to pull a Jake like like Jake did last week, and look at a few works of art, and to contemplate them, uh, is gonna be a little less seriously than than he did though. The the first the first one I want to look at um, again, just to see how other people have interpreted this story. Um, what what is that stance that David is doing? I don't know, like what what is that? But I mean, I got I you got you gotta love the. Uh, the the Civil War general looking mutton chops there on Goliath. I think that's that's my favorite part. Um, and then we have just the general overall European flavor of this painting. It's really really interesting. Um, all right, let's look at the uh, the next one here. Oh, this is this is this is David and Goliath meets uh, Zack Snyder's 300. That's what this is. This is epic. What also is epic is that orange mullet. Um, <clears throat> that's maybe my favorite part there. I think it's back in style now, actually. Right, the the mullet. Um, yeah, so interesting there. Um, the last one before we look at it, um, it it's called uh, Self-Portrait as David with the Head of Goliath. Okay, I'm going to warn you, it's a little disturbing, but maybe not in the reasons that you think. Let's take a look at this one. Oh, oh man. Oh man, that makes me, that makes me uncomfortable. Can we, can we take that off? Please take that off. Oh. I, have, I have so many questions about that one. What? Like, why, why was his head so much, like, so much smaller than his body? And was he ripped or was that a dad bod? Was he tebowing on Goliath's head? But I think my biggest question is, can he please stop looking at me like that? Because it makes me feel real uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, it's easy to kind of fun, poke, poke fun at, at some of those, those paintings. But we have to realize that we actually interpret this story in sometimes similar ways to that. Um, like the first painting, um, we sometimes put our own culture on top of the story and read it in that way. Um, We sometimes turn it into this like epic throw down. Maybe it is that, maybe it's not. Um, Or like that third painting, um, we place ourselves right smack dab in the middle of its story as its hero. Right? It was called Self-Portrait as David. That's what that was. So I don't want to meet that artist, (laughs) Um, that stare. you know, th- Again, this is a really familiar story, and I don't know that I'm going to um, say anything new or you know, you, I, I, that you've never heard. I, I kind of hope not, actually. Um, but I do want us, as best we can, to hear this familiar story with, with fresh ears and open hearts and receptive to what the Holy Spirit might speak to us. So we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't read the whole, uh, the whole story, but we're going to just talk through it. So I'm just going to talk through the story, and I want to draw your attention to a few things. So let's set the scene here. Um, first, we need to remember that this is actually probably taking place in between some of the events of the previous chapter. So in chapter 16, uh, Samuel anoints David as, as the new king, um, and then the, it, it jumps to uh, uh, the, the spirit leaving Saul and David coming and ministering to Saul. So this is actually probably happening in between that before uh, uh, David ministers to Saul. It's at this time when the Philistines are coming up from the flat coastlands, and Saul and his army approach from their mountainous cities, and they meet around this valley. Neither would want to take the initiative to attack, because to do so, uh, you would have to enter the valley and give your opponent the the high ground, and neither camp is going to want to do that. So, how are you going to settle this stalemate? Enter Goliath. The writer doesn't have to use words like fierce or mighty or bold to describe him. Goliath's visual impact says all that needs to be said. He is enormous. There's some debate about his actual height because of of, um, some discrepancies in the manuscript. I've I've read it could be anywhere from like 6'9 to 9'6, which is a pretty big difference. But uh, in in any case, compared to the average height of the Israelites, which we know based on archaeological records to be around 5 feet maybe, He's a giant. He is enormous. His his armor gleams of bronze, and his weapons of bronze and iron, forged by the skilled Philistine Smiths, unbreakable and impenetrable. Its weight, anywhere from 120 to 160 pounds, which is like wearing David, essentially, um, it, that testifies to his immense strength. He is a true champion. He steps forward and shouts his challenge of single combat. Let Israel send forth the champion to fight on its behalf. Goliath will fight on behalf of the Philistines. Um, and this, this is not a, 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 a cool, level-headed solution given as a logical way uh, to settle the impasse of the two armies. No, no he is defying Israel, which is to say he, he mocks, he derides, disgraces, he shames them. He essentially says, you puny, weak maggots, which of you wants to be squished under my foot? The Israelites are absolutely terrified. Goliath's right, they think. None of us is a match for his immensity. Surely we'll become their slaves. Not even Saul ventures to stand up to him. Saul, the, the one who, as king, uh, was the obvious choice to be the people's champion. Right? You would think that he would stand up. But he doesn't. You know The one who stood a head taller than the rest. So maybe he actually has a, a greater chance uh, against Goliath. He, he owned one of the few swords among the Israelites. And we'll soon discover he has his own set of armor. Why isn't he stepping up? And what's going to happen? Around verse 12, David enters. And we didn't read this part of the story, but we still, still want us to pay attention to it um, because of its ordinary, ordinariness. Right, uh, it, it's, it's almost just a happy accident that David is, is even there. Let's just forget this epic showdown uh, for a little bit that we tend to portray into this story. The author takes actually quite a bit more space um, to, to tell us just uh, about David and his background, um, which is interesting that he takes more space to do that than the actual fight that, between uh, David and Goliath. The author just wants to point out again that there truly isn't anything special about David from most people's perspective. Um, He's from a small town of no account, from a family of no real account. His father is old. He's the youngest and smallest of the family. And the most notable thing about him is actually that his three uh, oldest brothers have enlisted in Saul's service. That's the most notable thing about uh, uh, David. And Jesse, his dad, asked him to take some grain and bread to them and also 10 cheeses to their commanders, which I think is just an interesting detail to throw in, you know, David, the deliverer of cheese, Oh, that's an interesting detail. Uh, and then he, uh, Jesse also asked David to uh, bring back a token of his son so that he can know that they're okay. That's, that's it. Nothing spectacular. David is just an errand boy. But there is a vitality and eagerness about him that is refreshing in this story. As he approaches the scene, unlike Saul who hid among the baggage when the enemy was at hand and a king was needed, Uh, David actually hands off his supplies with the keeper of the baggage. And it's not because he's he's hot-headed and ready for a fight. No, he is simply following his father's instructions, and he goes and greets his brothers enthusiastically. Ordinary events, nothing especially significant in that. Then verse 23 happens. and, And verse 23 says this. As he talked with them, it says David talked with his brothers, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. That last statement is really interesting. I think it's a it's a very loaded statement. David heard Goliath. Notice that when the men of Israel hear the challenge, they run in terror, but not David. Why is his response so strikingly different? What is it that he hears differently than they do? After also hearing <clears throat> the whispering of the soldiers that Saul would greatly reward anyone who could kill Goliath, David asked two questions, which I think answer our question of what sets him apart from the others. What is it that he is hearing differently? So this is in verse 36. Let's, let's look at it. And David said to the men who stood by him, "What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God?" There are three interesting things that I want to highlight in this particular verse, and helps to show us what David is 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 hearing or what he's seeing differently. First he recognizes or he hears the real reproach that Goliath has cast upon Israel. He's not just challenging them to a fight. So much more than that, he is shaming them, he's calling into question their honor and worth. The word for reproach in, in, in the Hebrew is the same word as defy. That's, just, that's what the, the passage says that Goliath is doing over and over. He's defying them. He's shaming them. He's dishonoring them. And no one else seems to feel that like David does. Because if they did and had even an ounce of courage, and maybe they don't, uh, they would res- respond to clear their name and restore their honor. So David hears that reproach. Uh, Second, where all of Israel sees an invulnerable Philistine, David sees only an uncircumcised pagan. An uncircumcised here highlights that Goliath was outside of the covenant of God and does not live or worship in reference to him. So in in the Old Testament, um, circumcision was the sign that you were part of the, the people of God, and that's not Goliath. So the Israelites see an unbeatable warrior. David sees nothing more than a beast attacking the flock of God. That's the analogy he'll use with Saul here in a little bit. Where they see literal height and assume a dominating presence, he sees what the author has been training us to see when we talk about height, which is pride. Goliath boasts with unparalleled bravado, not realizing that boasting, more often than not, is just hiding weakness. The overinflated ego is actually the most fragile of all. It's just like a balloon that's overinflated. The slightest touch, or within, in this case of, a, of an inflated ego, the slightest insult or critique or error, and pop, you're undone. So, where they see the weight of Goliath's armor and assume strength, David sees Goliath's undoing. Turns out that a stone flying at 120 miles per hour is a little faster than a giant weighed down by a bunch of armor. Third thing that we see in verse 26 about what David perceives differently, David perceives that Goliath is shaming not simply Israel and not even simply Saul, the one who Goliath recognizes as having authority over Israel. No, Goliath has elevated his own weight, or we know that word in 1 Samuel it means glory or meaning or significance. Goliath has elevated his own glory and not given glory to the living God. David is the only one to perceive that Goliath is not shaming the armies of Saul, but the armies of this living God and thus dishonoring God himself. He hears that, but no one else seems to really hear that. So the first point of the story that I want to draw out is this. Number one, David perceives life in in light of the living God. He sees and hears differently than others. And it's because he has learned to abide with God, to walk with him in faith, and to be full of the Spirit. This gives him the ability to perceive things differently, to see the reality of this giant from Gath, and to see his threat with greater depth than anyone else. He sees what's really going on here. Um, It's not uncommon in teachings about this story to say something like, um, what are the giants in your life? Um, And I've actually kind of mocked that question before, mostly because it's just the cliche in so many Christian songs, right? Like you can go turn on the radio and you're going to hear something about uh, slaying giants or washing giants fall, also breaking chains and moving mountains and stopping the, ma- the, li- the, the mouths of lions. And there's a whole bunch of cliches that are just used over and over again. Uh, and so I, that, that kind of maybe uh, the, the cliche turns me against that question. But it's actually not a terrible question in and of itself. <clears throat> What, when we answer that question, though, will we perceive the giants in our, what, what the giants in our lives actually are? Um, are we walking with God so closely that we'll identify them rightly? Will we see and hear like David sees and hears? Um, because I, I hate to break it to you, but your boss, as overbearing as he or she might be, probably isn't the giant in your life. Could be but maybe not, um, and it also might not even be the case, and I'm, I'm saying might not be the case because it could be um, that your anxiety or depression or health condition is the giant in your life. It really depends because to discern the giants in our life, we need to ask not what is coming up against me, but what is dishonoring and opposing the Lord and taking away from his glory. There's a really big difference between that, between what is coming up against me and what is opposing the Lord. And if Goliath, who we know is the enemy in this uh, story, if his primary identifying characteristic is pride, it just might very well be the case that the giant in your life is actually you. The subtle ways you make everything about yourself the feeling of superiority and accomplishment you possess or the words you use to talk about others to put them down so that lifts you up. And if uh, Goliath's primary action is to defy or mock or dishonor God, it just might very well be the case that um, your giants are the simple rhythms and patterns of your life which decenter God and elevate other things instead so that what your what what your actions actually show as to as to what you're saying singing worthy worthy to is something other than God. So if you want to pinpoint this giant, maybe um, trace back your anxieties and fears and see if the root is a a distrusting of God and an attempt of building your foundation on something else. Maybe that's how we could identify our giants and perceive them rightly. But also notice that in this story, Goliath um, dishonors and mocks God not by attacking a single person, but by challenging the people of God. So those who perceive things with reference to God, as David did, see and hear the attacks to God's flock, his people. So perhaps the giants in our lives have relatively little to do with you individually. They could, but maybe they have more to do with God's people as a whole false teaching, hidden abuses in the church, um, the cultural tendencies to idolize freedom or love or self-expression or country. Maybe these are our giants. So the main question here is, are we perceiving things in light of God? Are we asking what is opposed to the Lord and diminishing his glory or what is coming up against me? And then... Are we stopping and pausing and listening for God to reveal the answer? The story continues. <clears throat> As the story uh, progresses, David faces a few minor challenges before he gets to Goliath. Again, this story is, is, is it's, it's long. It's about building up this tension before even getting to Goliath. So first, his own brother is offended by his questioning. David is essentially going around and saying, wait, this guy is defying God, um, and someone has a chance to bring uh, honor back to God's name and get a pretty killer reward? What's the deal? Why is no one speaking up? There's plenty of reasons to go and, and fight this guy. Um, Eliab, David's oldest brother, who we know from the last chapter, has the most kingly appearance, lashes out accusing David of being uh, presumptuous and and maybe even having an evil heart. My guess is that he is so offended because he knows it should be him speaking up, and it's not. Um, And the fact that his little brother is, is a little embarrassing. I think this is a case of the overinflated ego being easily popped And if you want to try to locate where the pride in your life is, you can look at what most easily offends you and where you tend to lash out, and that's probably going to be a pretty good indication. I think that's what we see with Eliab. I love that David responds as only a little brother would, which just shows the the realness and ordinariness, I think, of this story. In verse 29, David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Which is just another way of saying... um, what did I do? I was just asking, which is just totally a little brother move, I think. And I, I, I love that. I was just asking. Um, well, <clears throat> word gets around to Saul. Uh, it gets around to Saul of David's curiosity, and he summons David. Notice that David didn't seek out the battle. I think some people really love the fight, love to just go and love conflict. And that's not what we see of David here. But when he's brought into it, he is ready. He does have a a willing and prepared uh, heart to do what needs to be done. As he he goes before Saul, you would think that Saul, as king, um, and the one in the superior position, would speak first. But the author clues us into the fact that David, even in his low position as as youngest child and shepherd and and errand boy, um, is the superior he is God's true chosen and anointed king, and he speaks first. And the words of God's king, full of the spirit, are words of peace to calm an anxious heart. Right? Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. It's words of, of assurance, of, 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 of peace. So no, don't let your heart be troubled. I'll go, I'll do it. But Saul sees in in David what Goliath will see, youth and inexperience. Um, And this is another challenge David must face. And so how is he going to respond with that? Well, look with me um, in verse 34, and you can see uh, how David is going to respond to this. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion... Or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now, on the whole, I'm pretty uh, anti-beard yanking. I think it's kind of a cheap move. Not for it. However, when that beard belongs to a lion or a bear, and you grab it by its beard and pop them in the face, I got nothing but respect. I think that's pretty awesome. <laughs> this is maybe my favorite part of this story. Like he just grabbed the lion in the beard and struck him and killed him. That is incredible. But David is not saying this to uh, boast about what he's done. He's not just trying to uh, throw out his resume about, about and show all his qualifications for this job. No, he's doing something um, a, a little different there. He's actually demonstrating uh, his love and his care for the flock. And even more than that, He's, he's showing the past faithfulness of God to deliver through him. Because David is very clear. He's like, this is not, I, was like, I, I, didn't, I didn't do this. It's the Lord. That's Yahweh, the God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and remains eternally faithful to that relationship. He's the one who did the delivering and the saving. That's, that's why David can respond as, as he can and proclaim peace and assurance and hope into this situation because he knows the faithfulness of God so that that brings me to the second point I want to draw out so if the first was was David perceives things differently in light of the living God our second point is that David speaks hope and assurance in light of the covenant making God so he sees things differently and he speaks differently he is not only the first in this story to make reference to God, he is the first in, uh, in, in this story to use God's revealed name, Yahweh. We see it in our, in our English Bibles as Lord in all capitals, but that's, that's actually how we translate um, Yahweh. <clears throat> and this was the name that was revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3 to demonstrate God's faithfulness to Israel in order to give them hope that he would deliver them from slavery. David knows this about God. And in that knowledge of who God is, and from his experience of that knowledge, David speaks words of comfort. This is essentially uh, David's gospel. It's his good news. The Lord, who has saved us before and who has saved me before, can save us again. That's kind of what he's saying. How do you speak? Do you speak in light of our eternally faithful, loving God? What kinds of words do you proclaim? If the words that leave your lips come from a heart that is full of the Spirit and from a heart that knows and has experienced the faithfulness of God, they will be words that bring hope and peace and unity and calmness to others, particularly as you are recalling the past faithfulness of God. Is that what your words produce in others? Or... Do they stoke fears about attacks from culture? Do they fuel anxieties about the right way to raise your kids? Do they fan the flames of division and disunity? Are they full of grumbling and gossip? Because instead, the mantra of our lives should be hope-filled. It should be, God has delivered and he will deliver again. Be at peace. We can be at peace. That's what your words should do. Story moves on, and we come to the moment we've all been waiting for the showdown with Goliath. Saul, assured by David's confidence in the Lord, clothes him in his own armor because, in his mind, that's how you defeat a gigantic, heavily armored foe. You match him as best you can, and you go and fight. David rejects the armor, not because it's too big, although it probably was, but he says he's not going to use this armor because it hadn't been tested. That's not how God had proved his faithfulness previously. So he's not, he's not going to fight that way. He's going to go with how God has proved his faithfulness in the past. So instead, he picks up his shepherd's tools, a staff, his sling, his satchel, and five smooth stones. Um, we don't know exactly why he picked up five stones. Uh, I don't think it's because he thought he was going to miss and uh, needed, needed some backup, that doesn't seem to fit with uh, the confidence that he has in the Lord. In fact, I think picking up the five stones is an act of confidence. Um, there were five major Philistine cities, one stone each. Who can say? As David walks into the, into the valley approaching Goliath, Goliath meets him there and the contempt of Eliab and the thoughts of Saul pour out of his mouth, dripping with total disgust. Goliath basically says, do you think I'm a dog that you can just beat me with a stick? You are cursed by Dagon and Ashtaroth, my mighty gods. Come set your stick against my sword. You will be food for buzzards and field mice. But in the regular course of life, David has been preparing for this jeering. And we could have a whole other sermon about uh, preparation for the battle, but that's not this sermon. So how does David respond to this jeering? What, how, what, how has his life been preparing him to respond? And this is what he says um, in verse 45 uh, to 47. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, He acknowledges Goliath's seemingly impressive weapons. But he also recognizes who stands above, behind, and before him. The Lord of hosts. The faithful God who commands all of heaven's armies. That's who's with him. I love also that that David ups Goliath's threat. Goliath had said, like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna feed your body to the birds and the beasts. And David says, Oh yeah? All the hosts of the Philistines will be food for birds and beasts. He's like, you're about to see how how epic you're you're about to lose. And why is David fighting? It's not for his glory. It's not for Israel's. He says, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Imagine what the Israelites were thinking as they were hearing this. Uh, Did they see this little shepherd boy and think, oh man, what is he doing? (laughs) We're going to be slaves for sure. (laughs) Did they hear his words and, and were they inspired, recalling the many improbable victories God had achieved for them in the past? I don't know. I just know that David fights in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh. For his glory and in his power. Not for his own glory, not for the glory of his people, not by power according to our own standards. And God, with his unlikely champion, using unconventional and unexpected means, secures victory quickly and decisively. In just a couple of verses, we see the two rush the battle line, David slings his stone, Goliath falls, David takes his sword, cuts off his head, the Philistines flee, boom, done, so much for an epic battle. It's over like that. This is the third point I want to uh, draw here. So we've seen David perceives things differently. He, he speaks differently, and then he acts differently. David acts in light of God's wisdom and power for God's glory to be known. He acts in light of God's wisdom and power. Um, why do we not experience victories In our lives against our giants, well, there could be a a whole number of reasons. Um, One points back to what I said a a second ago. Maybe we've uh, we're we're, we're fighting the wrong battle. We've misidentified the giant, and so we need the spirit of God to open our eyes to perceive the battle rightly. Another reason we don't experience victory could be that we've forgotten the past faithfulness of God, and so are overcome by fear um, and anxiety, and we're trapped in cycles of sin. Um, rather than resting in and hoping for God's grace. So we need to be speaking, and we need others to speak, into our life of God's enduring faithfulness. A third reason uh, might be because we're actually hoping for our own glory to increase, our own notoriety or status. It could be the right battle, but we also kind of want to be known that we're the one doing the fighting, And that would only serve to build up our pride and draw us further away from God. So maybe that's why we experience defeat. But finally, a fourth reason we seem to be constantly defeated might be because we're using the wrong weapons. Maybe we are trying to get a sword and strap on armor and that's not what God has called us to do. One of those weapons might be uh, willpower. Willpower doesn't save. Sometimes we think uh, we just have to bunker down and and push through and that's how we can win the battle against our giants and that's not what is communicated here. One commentator on this text noted, David will be delivered not because he has true grit but because he knows the true God. That's the difference. Um, Gaining influence and power does not save. That's another weapon we like to use a lot. Sometimes we think that if we can gain uh, influential positions in the church or government or schools or media, then we'll experience the victory of God, Uh, maybe maybe even on a a global scale. And it's certainly not bad to be in positions of, of influence. In fact, I wish more Christians were. But putting our hopes in that... If we do, we're going to be let down because the story is training us to see that fighting using the same means as the enemy maybe isn't the way to go. The text emphasizes multiple times that David did not win with a sword. There is something more powerful than sheer strength. Um, this this is actually echoed all throughout scripture, especially um, the, the Psalms, many of which David himself actually uh, wrote. So the same idea that, that God's battles are fought differently um, appears there. So let's take a look at um, Psalm 4, 147. It says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So that's where um, we see the victory because of fearing the Lord and submitting to him and his, his love then coming over us. And that's how the battle is won. A similar thing is said in Psalm 33. "'The king is not saved by his great army. "'A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. "'The war horse is a false hope for salvation, "'and by its great might, it cannot rescue. "'Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, "'on those who hope in his steadfast love.'" that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So again, fear and love, fear of God, love of God. Maybe that's, that's the weapon that we fight with. And finally, let's look at um, Psalm 20, uh, starting in verse six. This is like just a summary of this story, essentially, in just a couple verses. It says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, That's David, he's the anointed one in this story. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. We saw that God delivered through that that sling. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, Goliath, Saul, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's exactly what David says. He says, I come in the name of the Lord. They collapse and fall. Goliath literally collapsed and fell. But we rise and stand upright. O oh Lord, save the king. May He answer us when we call. That is just in, in song form, what we saw happen in this story. So God is training us to see that His ways, which might appear as weakness to many, are, in fact, our only hope for salvation. And of course, that has already been apparent in First Samuel. Just go back and read Hannah's song uh, in, in chapter two. God is training us to see that his ways, which might appear as weakness to many, are in fact our only hope for salvation. Uh, if you've been at the parks for a while, you can probably guess where this is going. <clears throat> and I don't even care because it's the best part. You're all about to get Jesus juked. <clears throat> you thought this whole, uh, this whole time, this story was about David and how he's an exemplar of faith for us. And that certainly is the case. In Hebrews 11, he is listed uh, among the great company of the faithful whom we are to imitate, but this story is so much more than that. David is so much more than that. He's not just a model of faith. He's a type of Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Uh, He is a lowercase a anointed one, pointing to the capital A anointed one. So our fourth and final point is this. Jesus is our true and final champion. Jesus is our true and final champion. It was, uh, it, it was so uh, interesting to look at this story and just think about all the parallels between this story and Jesus' life. There are so many. Like uh, David, Jesus came from a city of no account, except for its relation to David, Bethlehem, and was from an unlikely family. Right? His mother became pregnant out of wedlock. He was born in a stable. He wouldn't have seemed impressive to anyone who hoped for Israel's salvation. Like David, he faithfully obeyed his father who sent him into service. I don't know how many times Jesus says that his father sent him um, in the Gospel of John, but it's a lot. Just go read the Gospel of John. He's, again and again, he's like, the father sent me, the father sent me, just like David. And we may not have stories of Jesus providing uh, bread and cheese for his brothers and commanders, but he definitely fed people, bread and fish, over 5,000 of them with five, five loaves and two fish. I think that's a little more impressive than David. Is he anointed by and full of the Spirit of God like David? Yes, just read Luke 4. Did Jesus perceive things in light of God? Yes, even more than David. See, Jesus didn't see pious, God-fearing Pharisees like everyone else saw. He saw legalistic, oppressive, whitewashed tombs. He didn't see people in the temple providing sacrifices for, for pilgrims traveling to the holy city He saw people exploiting the poor and driving out the Gentiles from the temple courts so that they couldn't worship the living God. He overturned a few tables and took care of that one. And then check this one out from uh, Matthew 9 just to see how differently Jesus saw things and how deeply he saw things. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Not uh, rise up and walk. That's what most people saw was the main problem. He sees deeper than that. He saw that the real need there, the real issue was sin that needed to be forgiven, that, that he was separated from God and needed to be brought back into, the, into that relationship. That's how deeply Jesus sees. He sees that the real giant is sin and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. First Corinthians 15 26, does Jesus speak words of hope and peace like David? Of course he does. To the man possessed by demons, to the woman plagued by uh, blood disease, to the thief on the cross, to the outcast and forsaken, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul sums up Jesus' preaching ministry this way in Ephesians 2. He says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far and peace to those who were near. Jesus, his, his ministry was, was one of preaching peace, of saying no, you, you are loved by God, you're gonna be forgiven, you're gonna be brought back into a, a, a relationship with God. Did Jesus act in weakness so that the enemy would be defeated and God's, God's glory would be known to all? Colossians 2 says it better than I could and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, we're a lot like Goliath in the uncircumcised. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the cross, in the, the most unlikely, uh, using the most unlikely of weapons, we see the defeat of sin and hell and the grave. God took what was weak and despised and foolish in this world, a humiliating death on a cross, to shame the wise and strong and deliver us from sin. Again, Paul says it better than I could in in 1 Corinthians 1, um, starting in verse 28. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption verse 31 Do we have that's the main part anyways we became in Christ righteousness and redemption, and sanctification, all of that because we're in Christ. So Jesus achieves for us a victory that is so much greater than David's victory, right? Because it's, it's, it's deeper, it's spiritual, it's, it's this thing, sin, which, which can, can trap us and, 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 and just drives us into fear and can drive us into anxiety and shame and guilt. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna take that on me on the cross. Everyone expected a Messiah, an anointed one, to come in and and to defeat the the oppressive Roman army. And Jesus says, that's not how this thing is gonna work. I love you so much that I'm gonna do something even greater than that. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna die for you. My weapon is going to be my own self-sacrifice, my love for you. That's how the victory is going to be won. We often place ourselves in this story as David, hoping to imitate him. And like I said, that's not a bad thing. But if we see ourselves as anyone in this story, I hope it would actually be the Israelites. Right, like I've already pointed out that a lot of times we are Goliath in this story, but I hope and I pray that we're actually like the Israelites, that we place ourselves in in their shoes. Because the Israelites, I mean, yes, they had been uh, uh, just overcome by fear they were letting um, the enemy prevail seemingly they weren't being faithful to god they would have lost the battle if it was up to them but they had a champion we have a champion his name is jesus christ and he goes before us and delivers us from that fear that shame that guilt he frees us from sin and even death by his own death and resurrection Jesus' gospel is even greater than david's and that is the victory that we get to be a part of. The Israelites in this story, after David has killed Goliath and cut off his head, they actually go and they chase off the Philistines. They, 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 they run them off back to their cities, they're cutting down the enemy as they go, and then they come back and they plunder the camp. And I love that. Did they win the victory? No, no. Could David have said, all of this is actually mine? I think he could have. But he says, no, no, my people enjoy the victory I've given you. This is what Jesus does to us. He doesn't hold back anything. He he overcame death and he says, I'm going to give that gift to you. You can have life. You can know the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we've experienced for all eternity. I'm going to give that to you all the, the, the plunders uh, uh, of this battle, enjoy. That, I think, is, is such a, a, a beautiful thing that he has done for us. But it would be really easy for us to see that victory been achieved and then just stand there. <laughs> no. Don't just stand there. Don't, don't, don't just stand there. Be the Israelites who then go and follow their champion into victory, into that, that relationship with God. That's the invitation for you this morning, that, that you would enjoy that victory, that you would experience the peace and love of God because you have a champion who has achieved it for you. And so really the, the question here that, that is put to each of us is, will you remain Trapped in the fear of man, in bondage to slavery, or will you join Jesus and will he be your champion? Will you say, yeah, I've failed, I I, I can't do this, but he's done it for me and so I'm gonna submit to him. This story is so much more than imitating David, it's about being united to Jesus, our true champion. Let's pray and ushers you can get you can prepare for communion as we pray Father, you are so good to us we we see we, we we see things so wrongly so often we misjudge things we speak in such a way that it it stirs up uh fears and 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 we gossip and we 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 don't speak the truth. We fail to act in ways that would glorify you. We seek our own glory. We are a people so full of pride. We could could go on and on and just confess to you the many ways in which we have rebelled against you, that we have forgotten who you are. Thanks be to God that in Jesus we have deliverance. Just like through David, you delivered the Israelites through Jesus you have delivered all of us. And we get to just enjoy that. We get to enjoy that victory that that you have won, that that freedom from sin. We get to experience love and life in your presence that is incredible. And we get to go and and participate in the battle even. We get to go and, and help in undoing the effects of sin. You've already won the victory, but you, you invite us into to, to, to doing that, of being a salt, uh, salt and light in, in, in this world. And so I pray that you would have us be a people that is not just still standing on the side of the mountain, but who are rejoicing in the fact that you are our champion. And now we're gonna go and pillage the enemy for anyone here who is feeling weak and and just overwhelmed, would you speak your words of peace to them specifically and remind them that they have a champion in Jesus Christ. Give them the boldness that they don't have. Give them the peace that they don't have. And for those who are here and have have never experienced your love, just let them know that you love them. That even though that they're far from you, you go after them. You are the good shepherd who wants to bring them back into the flock. Remind us of those things this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.